The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Benched with Bubba, episode 272. Got a special guest today to talk about uh, maybe some dynasty, some prospects, some season long, a little bit of everything. A fantasy smorgasbord of fun here. You can find him on Twitter at Prospects365. Ray Butler, how we doing, man? I'm good, man. Episode 272 is super impressive. We only have eight episodes of the Prospects365 podcast, so 272 is darn impressive, man. I appreciate it. It's uh, it's it's the the love, the grind that we love is is the way I'll, I'll put it. But uh, you'll get there in no time, no doubt about that. As see what I do in podcasting, you've been doing in writing for a long time. So well, we'll it's like a trade off. <laughs> so well, I appreciate that. Yeah, you've uh, like I was telling you beforehand, it, it's fun to finally cross paths and get a chance to record it up. Uh, I, I respect the, what you do from afar, and now it's fun to to chat it up a little bit. As it, it's interesting. Uh, I told you beforehand with no real news, we're kind of just going to have a smorgasbord of fun here and just kind of talk a little bit of everything. And before we get into that per se, let everybody know what you got going on. If you want to plug away at anything, plug everything you want to plug. And I know we're going to talk about some of your recent articles, but just in general, you mentioned your podcast and other things. Go ahead and you have the floor. I appreciate it. So we have eight episodes published of the Prospects 365 Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Uh, trying to get a new episode out right now every few days. So we have multiple episodes every week, trying to have on uh, as many guests as possible. During this layoff, I've tried to begin to learn how to edit audio. So now uh, my normal co-host is Mike Curlin uh, at the Bases Loaded Network. Now it's just kind of me, and I'm trying to bring on as many guests as possible. So check that out. We are on all major platforms. Uh on the site, prospects365.com, we are continuing to pump out as much content as possible. We've been releasing new articles a few times a week, so there's plenty of new material there. 
Uh, make sure you also hit the contact us at the top of our homepage on the site. Make sure you are following following the entirety of our writing staff on Twitter. They have been pumping out some awesome content and they are well worth a follow. Yeah, I totally agree. It's been fun. And the one thing I've talked about on other shows is in this downtime, I've tried to make a point to read more articles. And one thing I've been doing is I, I peruse Twitter quite a bit, like way too much according to my wife, which she's probably right. But um, when I see articles that the headline kind of reaches out to me, I email it to myself. So it reminds me to read it later on. And, and that's how you find there's so many talented people out there. And it's uh, it, it's great to see. I know you added more writers this year. And it's cool to see the ever-evolving nature of the fantasy world. And I kind of want to start off with that is, you know, when I started doing this, you know, five, six years ago, whatever, dynasty prospect coverage wasn't as deep as it is now, obviously. Like, it's a massive group of guys, very talented guys, lots of really, really good, good analysts making a name for themselves. And you guys all seem to get along very well, which is a good thing, because it could be quite competitive at times. How do you, um, how are you dealing with, I guess, maybe having a ton of prospect coverage or how do you work with these guys? What's your kind of game plan or role in this ever developing and more and more dynasty leagues being out there? Right. Absolutely. It is certainly, you know, when I launched the website on 2000 in 2017, it was kind of just entering the, I guess kind of the golden age of dynasty leagues, because like Mm -hmm. you said, it wasn't that long ago that dynasties were not a gigantic piece of the fantasy baseball world. I launched uh, the site in 2017. We were really, really small. Uh, It took about a year to kind of get the wheels in motion fully. uh, And then it's just kind of taken off. But what you said is really important. We are, or I, you know, I consider myself really lucky to be working in kind of the niche of the baseball industry in which most of your bigger names really get along well. Mm -hmm. And an example of that is, you know, I consider Ralph Lifshitz, who is kind of, Uh, one of the lead dogs at Prospects Live, me and him have become really, really good friends. You know, we would text each other just about every night during the offseason. He was working on his content. I was working on my content. We would talk about prospects, just things like that. It's a really welcoming community. You're absolutely right. You know, there's still a ton of competitiveness and things like that. But for the most part, we keep it pretty level-headed. We support each other and each other's work. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I wanted to ask you because – like, I've kind of stayed out of the prospects games. I love prospects. I've talked about I love going to minor league games over regular games all day long. Like, I'll sit at the single-A San Jose Giants game and have so much more fun than going to a, a, a San Francisco Giants game. And I'm a diehard Giants fan. But just the overall experience and watching these kids that, you know, aren't getting paid millions of dollars and all these different things, I love it. I love everything about it. And I know that's what draws a lot of prospect guys to it is that kind of development. And I, I think the way I look at it, when I'm breaking down, you know, the top 300 with Trouts and all these guys that we know are have the regular playing time with the major league club and all these things, you kind of, everyone's kind of in the same world, but when you're in the prospect game, like you guys are, everyone can analyze someone differently. And that's the beauty of it. And you know, for one, a lot of guys don't hit that you think are going to be successful. How do you approach like uh, evaluating prospects? Are you more of an in-game guy, a video guy? Um, like how do you, how do you go about fantasy wise ranking these prospects when you know, I I don't know the exact number, what 60, 70% might not even get a chance to play in the big leagues. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's ironic because a couple of weeks ago I was sent, uh, the book future value, 
which is Kylie McDaniel and Eric Longenhagen. They wrote a book mm-hmm. together. I think it goes on shelves officially next week. So I kind of yeah, I saw I saw someone tweeting that. I can't wait to read that. It looks yeah, great. It, it's an awesome book. And in that book, one of the biggest takeaways, I actually pulled my phone out and took a picture of the paragraph in this book. Uh, so uh, they were talking about international prospects when this paragraph was written, but the pair it's super, it just really stuck out to me. It said that one of the main things about scouting prospects in person is you have to be 100% confident on your report on that prospect. While in the back of your mind, you know that 90% of the time you're going to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's really, uh, you know, kind of our process. My personal process has evolved more from the video in the first couple of years. I didn't really have enough time to get to the amount of minor league games that I really wanted to. I have made that time, especially, you know, last year I was able to scout every team in the Southern League for at least a series. I was able to make it to a couple of SEC weekend series, things like that. Uh, So it has kind of evolved over time from more of a video heavy approach to now I get to see a lot of the players that I rank, a lot of the prospects that I rank in person. I was also lucky enough to be credentialed to the Futures game in Cleveland last summer, and I was able to be on the field while all of those prospects took batting practice. I was able to sit in the scouting section during the game. So those types of experiences really kind of help you evolve as an evaluator of prospects. It's like you said, when you read like a dynasty list, a lot of the top is the exact same. Everyone is in the same boat as far as your Trouts and Acunas and things like that. But the the deeper down you go, that margin becomes such razor thin mm-hmm. that there's a whole lot of disparity in rankings. And I think getting to see these prospects in person hopefully gives me kind of a leg up over those who don't necessarily get to a lot of minor league games. You mentioned you got to go to some minor league games. You got the passes to the Futures game, which is awesome. Like that's I'm, Again, I think I prefer the Futures game over the All-Star game. I'm pretty sure you would agree with that and some others would. Um, when you're going to these minor league games, I, I've seen, you know, Brent Hershey and, and the Welsh and Ralph. And you guys are lucky that you're in locations that you can kind of hit up a bunch of areas all in one. I'm very envious of you. It, are you finding it to be pretty easy? Like are minor league teams very accommodating to, you know, writers like yourself that they want to bring you in? Or are they still kind of hesitant to, you know, keep people away from the kids or whatnot? And I, I call them kids and I apologize for that. But to me, they're kids. <laughs> right. And you really you get different experiences everywhere that you go. Uh, I'm lucky enough to where I'm about 20 minutes from the Jackson Generals, who are the uh, Diamondbacks double A affiliate in the Southern League. They're pretty welcoming. Uh, they've let me on the field multiple times last year for batting practice. I was already going to be credentialed for this year and have the, uh, I guess the privilege of, you know, kind of having the pregame scout meal, sit in the scouting section, uh, things like that. It's not always that welcoming. Most of the time when you scout, like in the Appalachian league, the rookie league, you can pretty much do anything you want. And then you kind of gain the levels you get to double a some, uh, some of the front offices in in the Southern League are really welcoming and you can basically do whatever you would like. Some are more restrictive for different reasons. Different teams kind of have different mindsets as far as that goes. All right. Now, that's interesting because I, I, I was very curious on that respect because I kind of want to 
bug the San Jose Giants one of these days and just go, hey, can uh, instead of sitting here in the front row and, you know, taking notes myself, can I maybe talk to these guys once in a while? Might be a little fun. So I'm just kind of throwing that out there. Yeah, um, and you mentioned- the, more, yeah. the more that you go, the better feel you get. Like there's always – when you once you get to double-A, there's always going to be someone behind home plate running the track man data, running the Rapsodo data, all of that advanced analytics that has become so important in prospect evaluation. I have been to, you know, the general stadium so many times that, you know, I can kind of elbow that guy and say, hey, what was that exit velocity or what's this pitcher's spin rate, things like that. And that guy knows me and has seen me well enough to where, you know, as long as I don't ask every five minutes, he's probably going to give me an accurate answer. Whereas last summer I went to a Tennessee Smoky series. That's kind of in East Tennessee. It, it, it was, I haven't been there very much, so I didn't really feel comfortable asking those questions. So you get more comfortable the more times you go and you kind of become more acclimated to asking those types of questions to the people who are in the know. You mentioned the track man setup, but I know it's a thing we talk about with the major league teams that certain teams are starting to, you know, grab onto this analytic, these tools that they can use. You know, the pirates are a big one this off season with the new coaching staff and all the guys have raved Mitch Keller and Musgrove and all those guys are raving about the new technology they're, they're using We've seen other players do this and other teams do it throughout the time. How how often do you do you see these teams using like a track man or other type of stuff in these double A or lower levels? Because I guess for the novice guy like myself, I would imagine triple A and above or even just the bigs because there's so many pro teams that still don't really use all these tools. Do you see a lot of these double uh, A teams actually using it and uh, maybe becoming more of a popular thing to do? Uh in my opinion, once you get to double A, you're going to see it almost everywhere you go. There wasn't a single Jackson Generals game that I went to last year where they did not have a track man kind of set up. And there was someone, it was the same guy every time running that data through their software just to make sure that they can put those numbers into their database. When you scout the lower levels, like in the rookie leagues, it's kind of hit or miss. Some teams want that data no matter what level you're evaluating. Some teams, like you said, even some MLB teams don't really lean on data as much as others. So it only makes sense that when you're in kind of the rookie levels for that organization, you may not see the same type of advanced analytics equipment, no TrackMan, no Rapsodo, things like that. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to the discussion we had a little bit ago about the razor thinness of a dynasty ranking once you get out of the common major league players and you said, you know, you rank your guys, you see them, and other guys do the same thing. Now, we know that a guy in single A can have this pedigree and we're all excited, and then they kind of struggle a little bit, and some people hang on longer than others. How do you know when to kind of pull the pen and go, you know what, I was wrong on this guy, he's not going to be it, and I'm just going to move him down the rankings? So it's actually kind of been linear with the the longer that I'm in the industry and the longer I get to write about prospects – the less pride that I have, I guess you could say. And what I mean by that is when I was just getting started, I was really hesitant to ever just come straight out and say, you know what, I was wrong because I was still attempting to build that credibility. People were kind of reading my content to kind of see, is this going to be someone who I can lean on heavily for that dynasty content so I can build the best farm system in my dynasty leagues? Now that I guess you could say I've established myself a little bit more I really have no issue with coming out and saying that I missed on a player. Last year, a couple of players who come to mind was MJ Melendez, who's a catcher in the Royals organization. He was a top 100 prospect for me. Last year, his strikeout rate was over 30%. 
He swung at everything, and that also had a negative uh, a negative effect on his power output, things like that. Estuary Ruiz, infield prospect for the Padres, really good speed and really good uh, base running instincts, some surprising power. I was under the impression that the hit tool was going to get a lot better. He was also a top 100 guy for me. People who I talked to who scouted him in the Midwest League a couple of year, years ago, you know, they told me, you know, this is a guy we think can have an above average hit tool when it's all said and done. And then he kind of tanked last year in the California League. It's a real that was a really good league for him to show his speed, show his power and also kind of show his gains and his hit tool. It just didn't happen. And when that when that happens and when a prospect does not develop in the way that you thought they would, especially when you kind of stick your neck out there and rank him inside your top 100, you have no choice really but to kind of admit, you know what, I was wrong. My apologies. I will get better because I was wrong on this prospect. No, I like that. I think that's a very important thing for anybody listening that is, is wanting to do their own rankings or is new to the industry or whatnot, that the second you can start actually, you know, just trusting your method or what you believe in and just taking a stand on it, because there's always going to be someone that disagrees with you. There's no way that's not going to happen because that's just the way of the world. You go to Reddit, you go to any forum, Twitter, anything, someone is going to disagree with you and they're going to let you know it. The sooner you can just let that go and do what you do, you'll become a better analyst. So Absolutely. And your, lo- your losses are going to be smaller too. Like exactly. if you, if I hold on hope on a guy who I've clearly missed on, like if I was still uh, touting MJ Melendez as a top 100 prospect this preseason, not only has my margin of error practically uh, gone extinct, now when I finally do admit the fact, you know what, I should have never ranked him inside my top 100. I'm going to receive more criticism mm-hmm. more criticism then because I held on for longer instead of going ahead and cutting my ties and saying, you know what, maybe MJ Melendez is still going to be an everyday big league catcher someday, but he's still never going to really be the type of fantasy prospect that I originally anticipated. Yeah, no doubt about it. And that's a big thing. And you get the, then you have people follow you and trust you more. And there's a lot to like about that. You mentioned like the strikeout rates going up and other things like that. You know, you can go to Prospects Live. They have a great uh, the, the minor graphs, really cool stuff with stats there. I know Rotowire and other sites are doing stats. Where do you go to find maybe the deeper stats, not just like the level, you know, average homers, RBIs, you know, the strikeout rates, maybe pull percentages, hard hits. What do you like to use to find uh, stats for minor leaguers? You know, it's kind of a cornucopia. There's just a plethora of different resources. I think I probably spend more time on fan graphs than anywhere else. I think it mm-hmm. gives you a pretty just uh, reflection statistically of a prospect's profile. I also spend quite a bit of time on Rotowire. I am a subscriber on that site just yep. because they have the minor league hard hit data. And that is such mm-hmm. a gigantic uh, kind of a, a point of value when you are evaluating prospects. And you can't find that anywhere else. I also go to baseball reference every once in a while. They do a really good job of kind of combining stats. If a prospect spends some time at high A, and then double A in the same season. Mm-hmm. When that season is over, baseball reference will kind of combine those stats and give you kind of one row of full season numbers, which is important to me when I kind of uh, want to add some basic material when I'm writing up a prospect for my prospect list. Uh, you know, as I go on and as my resources continues to increase and I uh, gain more contacts who are associated with organizations, Now it's kind of become I can drop that person a text Mm -hmm. and they can kind of get me some data on that prospect that I can't publish 
number for number because then that puts that uh, that puts my contact at risk. But it also helps me; it guides me as far as how aggressive or how conservatively I need to rank a prospect. No, that makes a ton of sense, and I love the Roadwire tool you mentioned. Yep, subscriber there as well. So a lot of great stuff there. Now we talked. You mentioned international prospects earlier, and, and I'm curious because we have fun talking about you know the the Asian prospects, and you have like the Dominican prospects or the Latin American prospects, all these different ones. And sometimes it's easy to find info. Sometimes it's not. Uh, you see when when signing day comes, teams sign a bunch of guys and. You know, there's the main guys that everyone talks about. There's a bunch of other ones. And you guys still get to rank them all because that's what you love to do. <laughs> um, right. How do you find the information on these guys? And, and um, is it one of the is it, is it much, much harder to kind of get a good grip on how these guys are going to play out without some, you know, maybe rookie ball experience? Yeah, it's infinitely harder. Uh, a lot of the information that I have on last summer's J2 class talking about a Jason Dominguez, a Robert Poisson, and Eric Pena. That is information from uh, instructs, whether that was before Christmas or early in the new year. Uh, Very little data, and it's really hard to come by. You have to be fairly well connected. Sometimes I get information from, you know, like fourth hand. I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy, and I kind of go that way to get data. You know, you see, you mentioned uh, Chris Welsh, who, and, you know, an example of this is he got to see Eric Pena in Instructional League late last summer or last fall. And he tweeted video of that. And it's such a valuable resource to have because that's not really we don't even have much video of these players as far as mm-hmm. current day. A lot of the video that we see or a lot of the video that gets circulated on bigger prospect. Yeah, bigger prospect sites. It could be from a couple of years ago sometime. So to have that video of an Eric Pena type last fall when it was current was such a huge data point for me. I got to study current video and that kind of led my evaluation. Now you can argue that microscopically small samples like Eric Pena hitting a couple of different pitches and different at bats led to kind of an over aggression as far as the way he was ranked throughout the industry this preseason, but it's still a data point one way or another. Yeah, no, that's very interesting because, you know, a lot of guys, people get excited about these young prospects. But you mentioned, I think, Jason Dominguez, and I hadn't really heard much about him. And then he, he comes over and makes a big name for himself. Now he's rocking it up um, dynasty lists all over the place, top, top 100 prospect lists, which is a very in- interesting stuff to look at there. With this downtime, this, you know, postponed season, you know, it looks like we're optimistic. We're going to get some playing. Um, we're we're going to stay optimistic on these things. What what's your thoughts on these prospects that, you know, we're, we're focusing on the major league season starting up expanded rosters might help a little bit here and there, but we, there's no talk of minor league games and it's going to be tough. You know, they're trying to make major league all in one location. Well, you can't do that with all the minor league teams all over the place. So what's your thoughts on how this might uh, hurt prospects or I, I don't really see how it can help them a ton, but what, what's your viewpoint on evaluating prospects or just the overall situation for them? It's funny because I recorded an episode of our podcast with uh, Shelly Verstray yesterday, and this was our main topic of conversation. So she brought up uh, kind of your starter pitching prospects like a Jason Groom and a Hunter Green who missed all of last season recovering from Tommy John surgery. Mm-hmm. Now you kind of think about the fact there's a chance that the 2020 minor league season is also canceled. 
So now you've got two prospects. Hunter Green is still a top 100 prospect. Jay Groom was. Now he's kind of towards the back end of my top 200. Two really, you know, touted prospects who have this track record and have this pedigree who are now going to miss two full seasons of development. It's just hugely negative, and it might not, you know, this season being hypothetically canceled has absolutely nothing to do with them. So Shelly brought that up. I was more in line with kind of your younger prospects. And, you know, a part of development that is almost never talked about in lists or in conversations like this one is younger prospects getting acclimated to travel. True. You know, you have your prospects who stay at the complex and play kind of an inner squad extended spring training games. Well, they go to the same hotel room or same uh, house every night to sleep in the same bed. And then you get assigned to a rookie league team or a short season team. And there is some travel, but it's mostly within the same state, maybe one state over, things like that you finally debut in full season ball and you're traveling sometimes a few States over on a, or in an uncomfortable bus seat. And, you know, you do that once every three days because you play a three game series or four or five game series. And then you hop right back on the bus and you travel to another state to play another series. That is something that a lot of these prospects have absolutely no experience doing. And it does impact the statistical output that we receive over the course of a regular season. You can also see it, you know, scouting a prospect early in the season when they're really refreshed, they feel really good, really strong, and then scouting them a few se- a few months later after they've been on the road traveling a couple times a week. Sometimes you can even spot maybe a decrease in bat speed or kind of just they look a little bit more sluggish. And prospects getting over that hump and getting acclimated to the travel and also the weather uh, that they are playing in based on where they played as an amateur. A lot of these players uh, in Latin America, things like that. It's just extremely underrated when you go about uh, evaluating these prospects. That's such a great insight there because a lot of us don't think about that. It makes total sense, like 100% sense. Think about anybody that maybe either out of high school or out of college just in regular life all of a sudden now you have to live in an apartment and pay for your own stuff and drive yourself to do this and do that. And just those minor changes, let alone, like you said, hopping on a bus, living out of your suitcase and all these other things, uh, different climates, different people, all kinds of things that just affect your day-to-day life, let alone trying to hit a, a little pelota. So that, that, uh, that changes a lot of things. Would you say in this potential no minor league season, which is a very strong reality here, you mentioned the Hunter Greens and the Grooms of the world, would you foresee this hurting pitchers more than hitters because they're not getting those reps or, you know, as a guy that played baseball, but didn't pitch, but as a hitter, those reps are just as valuable to me as well. How do you see that for prospect development? Yeah. If I had to pick, I'd say that pitchers will probably be more negatively affected than hitters uh, just because the organizations that lean really heavily on analytics are not going to be able to have those prospects within eyesight you know, with a Rapsodo pitching machine in front of them that's tracking the spin rate, spin efficiency, uh, max velocity, things like that every single time that they pitch. You know, of course, it is also going to have a negative effect on hitters. And I'm sure these organizations would also like to have these hitters within eyesight so they can track them analytically as well. But if you take a season-long sample away from a pitching prospect, 
I'm inclined to believe it would have more of a negative effect compared to taking an entire season away from a hitter. Interesting. Okay. I I could definitely see that as well. Those reps of just throwing more and uh, getting used to all that could make a ton of sense there. Uh, With this, again, situation we're in right now, there's been the rumors of a shortened draft and whatnot. We've seen some players already saying they're going to go back to school instead, or maybe you see some high school players going to college now. How do you see a shortened draft affecting either or both? A, the teams drafting, and B, these players either coming out of high school or out of college maybe sticking around some more. Yeah, I you know, I'm not sure it's going to have a gigantic impact on a dynasty league like a first-year player draft because most of the fir- first-year player drafts are short enough to where you don't really have to eat into much draft depth. You're not really looking for a player who was drafted in the 22nd round of the MLB draft to add to your dynasty league team, to, uh, your dynasty league team. Most leagues aren't that deep. But as far as the college landscape goes, I think you're going to have a lot of your juniors who were going to have to kind of, they were just leaning toward becoming a professional. They had had enough of the college experience, any number of reasons. You're now going to see that group probably return to school. Of course, the NCAA uh, has already announced that teams will be able to carry over the typical amount of scholarship players next season because not only are some of these players going to return, and you're also going to have some seniors uh, who are, will also be eligible to return next year for kind of a second senior season. Not only are you going to have those players returning if they would like, but you're also going to have a new freshman class come in as well. So I think, you know, long-term, that's going to impact kind of future draft classes. Normally next season we would get to see quite a few of your future top round picks playing at their college as a freshman. Now, perhaps with juniors and seniors coming back at a higher rate for next season, now those freshmen that would typically be everyday players may not play as much, which means our sample sizes are going to decrease. uh, And eventually that's just going to kind of decrease the margin of error we're going to have for our evaluations in future seasons with prospects that we're used to getting a full freshman season of statistical output for. Interesting. Very interesting. I didn't even think about the X, you know, the effects down the road there because extra players, uh, when we're talking like a real world uh, viewpoint here, major league teams drafting, just uh, if you had to guess, do you think they're going to be, you know, you see certain teams though, they have no problem taking high school kids. Certain teams love the college kids with this kind of, in, with this influx of questions we have right now, do you perceive maybe more of a college-based draft this year than some high school kids, or do you think it'll just be kind of, you know, whoever the best is they're going to take regardless? I think, generally speaking, I think organizations have most of the data that they would have had either way to uh, make kind of an educated decision in the top rounds of the draft. I do agree with you, though. I do think college players will be pushed up a little bit just because, most of your major conference teams that a lot of these prospects are in, they have access to the advanced analytics that are needed uh, for organizations to make these decisions and, you know, where these prospects fit kind of in their draft model and draft models have become such a huge deal. Uh, I have seen some of your bigger high school prospects, especially pitching prospects. They are filming bullpens that they're throwing since baseball has been shut down 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of these guys have access to a rap soto and things like that. And they're also kind of, it's kind of a side by side on the left side, you have the mechanics and the, this pitching prospect actually going through his bullpen on the right side, you have the rap soto output. So the spin efficiency, velocity, spin rate, things like that. That way your major colleges have this information that they wouldn't normally have, but also your MLB organizations who are considering drafting this high school pitching prospect. Now they have that information as well. Whereas, you know, had this prospect not posted that there's a chance that that information would simply be private instead of public. My, how times have changed. How times yeah, have changed. That's absolutely wild and good. Good for them to take advantage of these situations that they, they have at their fingertips. So that, that, that's really awesome. Like, the combination of a putting a video out and b that high school kids have rap soda machines now is just mind boggling. But that's good to see, good to see, and good to hear. Uh, you recently came out with a couple articles. We're going to kind of hit on them a little bit here. Uh, one was your top 100 for 2021, which is exciting to kind of give a look ahead to. Uh, like you titled it the Crystal Ball. I know you reading up on it. You mentioned you did this last year as well. It's a kind of fun exercise to look ahead. Um, what's kind of some of the, the takeaways you want to give someone before they dive into it? Because uh, you're going to re- be removing guys from the list, obviously, because you think they're going to be promoted and whatnot. Um, what, what's kind of the, I guess, you know, here's an idea of what to expect when reading this. Yeah, it's just kind of my in- interpretation. I kind of get to sit and really take a stab at predicting the future. I get to remove the prospects that I think have a good chance of graduating. And honestly, that becomes even more important in a season like the one we're about to see because timelines on prospects aren't really going to be the same as they normally would be, I suspect anyways. I get to remove those guys, and then I kind of get to add some players who are going to be drafted this summer that a lot of Dynasty League players have never even heard of. So I got to add kind of an Emerson Hancock, a Zach Veen, those types of players who are going to be drafted really highly in first-year player drafts this time next year. Uh, I got to add those guys, and then I got to, you know, really it helped me because it kind of began my process studying these first-year player draft-type players. I got to dive into the J2 class, got to watch some film on a couple of those guys. I had two uh, 2020 J2 players in my top 100, and it also kind of teaches you you know, how, just how much do you believe in a prospect? Like I got to move a Noel, a Noel de Marte who has all types of hype. You know, he was inside of my top 20 on this 2021 list. A guy, you know, Marte made my breakout list. A guy like Jose Garcia made my breakout list for this season. I moved him all the way from the high eighties to just outside my top 20. So it's that, it's that type of prospect who I kind of learned throughout this exercise you know what? I'm willing to stick my neck out there on these types of prospects. I am willing to wager that they are going to have fantastic 2020 seasons if we get to have one. And of course, it will be uh, reflected positively on future prospect lists. When um, you're talking about prospects moving up and down, and you know, there's outside of the the dumb rules they have about you know service time and everything. That's a whole other podcast on how that should be treated, but. Um, how do you, do you like? I guess the question I'm trying to ask is, you know, they say with pitchers, you only have so many bullets in your arm. So some people say bring the pitchers up as quickly as possible, but hitters, you play the game. How do you view that? Do you view just bring everybody up when ready because you want to see the talent like most of us do? Or if you're an organizational, like, 
eye, would you recommend, you know, holding guys back? How do you know when a guy's ready basically to help you contribute? I think, you know, it's very individualistic uh, because so many prospects that, you know, my mind immediately went to a Luis Robert. You know, statistically, if you just go to his fan grass page and you look at the, you know, the way he tore up the Carolina League early last season, then he tore up the Southern League, and then he did pretty well in the International League in AAA. You know, if you are only looking at the stats, then you might be able to say, you know what, I think this outfielder is ready for big league playing time. In all actuality, you know, Luis Robert is just an elite athlete whose hand-eye coordination was able to kind of get him through the fact that he swung at everything last season. And it's the same reason that, you know, I saw, I've seen a couple of prospect lists this preseason that ranked him, you know, I saw him as high as one. He was in the top three elsewhere. You know, he was a guy that I put at five and five, of course, is really high on a prospect list. But, you know, within the write-up, I said, you know, there's a non-zero chance that he comes out and he just, he doesn't make the contact he needs, he needs to in order to hit for the amount of power and to steal the amount of bases that a lot of people are projecting. So it's really individualistic. If you remove all service time thoughts from the equation, and of course you can in real life, but if you remove, if you remove all service time from the table, I am of the thought that, you know, a a pitcher who has not undergone Tommy John surgery, you might want to be a little bit more aggressive with him and get the bullets and get the output, you know, before you risk him, you know, blowing out his elbow, as sad as that is to say. You know, I I do think uh, it is much more individualistic with hitters just because plate approach is very so much compared to a pitching prospect who, you know, his the numbers that he gives us stabilize more quickly than uh, kind of your plate approach numbers, a walk percent, a strikeout percent, uh, batting average balls in play, that type of thing. So I think we have a, a little bit of a better idea with pitching prospects uh, you know, you could dive deeper into, you know, a pitching prospect with a changeup is going in all likelihood, he's going to dominate the lower level of the minor league because a lot of those hitters in those leagues can't really differentiate between a fastball and a changeup, especially if the pitcher maintains his arm speed. Chris Bubik uh, for the Royals is a player that immediately comes to mind. He was outstanding statistically last season uh, because he has a 70 grade changeup and he doesn't slow his arm down. So hitters thought they were swinging at a fastball when really they were swinging at a changeup that was 10 miles an hour slower and fading away from them. Uh, So there is, you know, there's just an infinite amount of individualism that goes into evaluating these prospects. But generally speaking, there is more individualism uh, with hitting prospects than pitchers. Um, A couple questions out of what you were saying there. First, I'm with you on uh, the pitching thing because one of the things I've, I've, kind of said a lot and it's probably negative. I try not to be negative, but it's almost when I see a, a top end pitching prospect get drafted, I just want them to go have Tommy John surgery right away. And then we can move on from there. Cause it's just, it, it sadly is the way things go. But um, on, on a positive note now, when we're looking at your, your rankings, your top 100s, 300s, whatever you have going on there. Um, what position, we'll start with the, the hitters first. What position do you think has like the most depth and then in the same vein, if someone's going to draft Dynasty, what position maybe should they be more aggressive on because there isn't as much depth? So any outfield prospect 
kind of receives, you know, it's a very tiny part of evaluation, but they might receive a little bit of a bump down compared to a shortstop prospect. And, you know, I always say, you know, one of the a really popular saying in the prospect industry is to bet on the athlete. And most of the time, your premium athletes, in all likelihood, are going to be shortstops. And if they're not shortstops, they're going to be center fielders. You know, even if a shortstop doesn't stick at a shortstop, I think of a C.J. Abrams who plays shortstop right now. Even if he doesn't stick at shortstop, he's either going to end up at second base, still the middle infield, or he's going to end up in center field. I personally think he's probably going to end up in center field, especially when you think about the fact that Fernando Tatis Jr. is going to be the shortstop in San Diego for the next decade. Uh, You know, giving those bumps to the kind of quote-unquote playing up the middle, your shortstop, your second base, and your center field, it just raises the real-life floor so much that it's going to give these prospects a cushion. Like a Christian Pache, when he debuts in the big leagues for Atlanta, whether it's this summer or next season, he is not going to tear the cover off the ball offensively from the get-go. But what he is going to give you is gold glove defense in center field. So his cushion in real life, he's not going to have to post uh, a weighted runs created plus of 130 to continue to get those everyday at-bats as long as you know, he's not a complete black hole offensively, then the Braves are going to be okay slotting him at the bottom of their order in their everyday lineup because of the defensive value that he brings to the table. And just because we're talking about defense doesn't mean that that has no impact in the fantasy world. I want prospects that are going to have a huge cushion at the big league level because you can't always bank on a Jordan Alvarez who gets called up and just mashes from day one a Ronald Acuna Jr. who who gets called up and just rakes from his very first game on. You got to have these prospects who teams are going to be okay if the development is a little bit more of a slow burn. And that's kind of the type of prospects that I always send uh, my VIP members who ask me questions in my direct messages on Twitter. Those are the types of prospects that I kind of send them to. The prospects who are going to have a really high real real life floor. And they're going to have that cushion that other prospects won't. I love it. I, I like that. That's a really, really good point of, you know, everyone wants to get that really flashy, exciting guy, but does he have the floor? Or is this kind of a, a once in a couple year type thing? And that, that's a good way to evaluate it when you're taking a dynasty approach. Um, talking positions again, you know, the catcher position, there's a lot of people that's just flat out, you know, when it comes to dynasty, leave catchers alone. Like just for the most part, don't worry about it. But when you're looking at guys like Adley Rushman, who who went uh, top of the or went number one a couple of years ago, and then you have others like Joey Bart and whatnot, but they're few and far between, obviously. How would you approach that come a dynasty draft? Would you still be aggressive on those guys, or do you kind of maybe look and go Bobby Wood Jr. instead of Adley Rushman, who those are two guys that you have right next to each other on your 2021 list? Right. So, you know, on a real-life prospect list, I genuinely believe that Adley Rutschman has a little bit of an argument for being the first-ranked prospect on real-life lists. I probably still have a Wander Franco who is going to probably play at least the first portion of his big league career at shortstop, but Adley is just an across-the-board beast. Not only is he going to provide a really good value offensively, but he's also a guy you don't have to worry about moving away from catcher until perhaps the twilight of his career. And, you know, it kind of goes back into this methodology. One of the things I, you know, 
yesterday, a couple of days ago, I released a every prospect who has the potential to be the number one overall prospect. And before I published that article, I tweeted out a list of the prospects who I kind of consider. Yes, they have this potential to be the number one overall fantasy prospect. And that's a really important distinction to make. And one of the things that I had to defend in that article was the fact that, you know, Adley Rutschman can be kind of a better version of what we have seen from JT Real Muto. And he's still not going to be a number one prospect on prospect list because Real Muto is from a fantasy standpoint, there's really no question that he is the top catcher off draft boards in I think every draft that I've seen uh, in every redraft I've seen this preseason, mm-hmm. you know, Adley Rutschman can be 20 picks better than real Muto when Rutschman is at his peak wow. and he's still not going to be the number one overall prospect on fantasy list. There's a lot of inherent risk. You know, you think about the fact that, you know, a lot of the minor league games that I scout, there are days that the catchers don't even take batting practice. They're in the outfield behind kind of a screen, uh, doing defensive drills, things like that. So much of their development has to be geared away from what they do offensively because at the end of the day, there's no – I mean, let's think about Austin Hedges. Mm -hmm. Austin Hedges is going (laughs) to maintain a job in the big leagues until he can't squat down anymore because he is the definition of an elite defensive catcher and the Padres are willing to take that 200 batting average with a whatever it is a 30 percent strikeout rate because he is going to provide something for them defensively that not a whole lot of other catchers can can you know he's probably the best defensive catcher um, in the big league so teams are willing to kind of take that hit offensively like a Kevin Plawecki an Indian scout worded this to me uh, like this at the futures game this summer the Indians didn't care if Plawecki grounded into two double plays and struck out in his third at bat every game that he plays because he is such a good defensive catcher. So the way that these organizations are kind of prioritizing the development of catchers, they want them to focus more on the framing, uh, the way that their stance is. You see a lot of organizations who are having their catcher get down on one knee now things like that, over the impact they're going to have at the plate. And when you take all of that into consideration, it's just really, really hard to stick your neck out there on having Adley Rutschman as a number one overall type of a prospect on a fantasy list. Now, you know, so much of a fantasy list is geared toward upside. And a lot of times when we talk about upside, we're talking about a speed output. Speed output plays a gigantic role uh, in the way that you evaluate these young prospects. So a Bobby Witt, who does not have the hit tool of an Adley Rutschman, I am more inclined to rank him a little bit more aggressively, a Bobby Witt, because of the chance that he develops maybe just a fringe average hit tool. But if he develops that fringe average hit tool, it's going to allow him to get to his plus or better raw power. It's going to allow him to have a speed output that helps you win Roto Leagues because he also possesses plus speed. As you can tell, there's just an infinite amount of kind of forks in the road that you have to evaluate when you go to rank these prospects, not only uh, for 2020 for this season, but also kind of crystal ball list like I did with my 2021 list. And that's why I wanted to have this kind of open discussion because there's so many 
avenues and forks the roads we could go down. But uh, I want to ask some, you know, with, with this downtime, I know you've noticed it. I've noticed it. There's so many more dynasty leagues starting up because a, the dynasty game, like we said, prospects, they are taking over. Like people are loving it. They're seeing the enjoyment of it. It's even a deeper way to play fantasy sports, not just worrying about, you know, your 25, 28 guys you drafted. Now you have like 40, 40 people rosters are deeper and you get to do all this fun stuff and make trades and, kind of get close to being a real major league baseball team. So it's a lot of fun. And Hey, we got nothing else to do right now. Why not go create dynasty leagues? Because at worst, if there's no season this year, we know eventually we'll have baseball again and you can play dynasty. So that's always fun. When you're approaching a first year dynasty draft, uh, I like getting people's opinions on this because there's the win now method. There's the kind of build for the future method. There's all kinds of different ways to go about it. How soon do you start taking prospects? How soon do I start in in a dynasty draft? Oh uh, yeah, first time beginning dynasty draft. Yeah, like a launch draft. Uh, you know, this is going to I, I assume this is probably going to surprise a lot of people that listen to this episode, but I am always immediately in win now mode. I love like it. Like the point of a dynasty league or any fantasy league is to win. Uh so quite honestly, you know, I launched two dynasty dynasties this offseason. I started the FDL, which is a 20-team league for my followers and myself. And I also launched the XDL, which is kind of the experts dynasty league. It's myself and a whole lot of other uh, prospectors in the prospect industry. In both of those drafts, I drafted second in the expert dynasty league. I drafted 16th, I believe, in the follower dynasty league. I drafted to win, which means – some of the specifics of the league were OBP instead of average were quality saves instead of wins and were save plus hold instead of just saves were five by five roto. So I basically built the best redraft teams that I could uh, based on our categories. Now, if I evaluated two players really, really closely to each other, then maybe I gave the nod to the younger player. But I wanted to build teams that had a chance of winning in 2020. You know, when you're playing in a 20-team league and it's a $100 buy-in and the winner of the league walks away with $1,250 at the end of the year, why wouldn't you want to build a win-now team? You know, instead of investing that money and hoping to win three or four years from now. And if you trust yourself enough from a, a prospect evaluation standpoint, you're going to be able to make the waiver wire moves and you're going to be able to draft the prospects towards the end of a launch draft that are still going to give you a a healthy farm system while you still compete. So the way my mind kind of works as far as dynasty launch drafts go, I want to build a team that is built to win right now, but I'm also going later in the draft, I'm going to supplement my win now team with prospects who I think People are kind of underpricing, underranking things like that that have the opportunity to kind of skyrocket up prospect lists in the very near future. Yeah, no, that's kind of my strategy too. I want to win now, see where it goes from there. And that's definitely the approach that I would take. Um, When you're in these dynasty leagues, this is where it gets fun because making trades is always fun, but it's hard to maybe get your, your grasp on what a player is actually worth when it comes to dynasty, especially someone like myself who might not be as deep into it as a guy like yourself is, obviously. Um, I, you know, you'll see people wanting to, you know, try to acquire Joe Adele and it takes three or four players or, you know, they, they make package deals and now you have like a six-player deal. 
like you tweeted out that one of your, your VIP guys, Victor Robles for CJ Abrams, Spencer Howard. How do you know or how do you get an idea? Obviously, we never know the exact answer, but how do you get the idea on what a player is worth or what it's going to take to make a, like a fair trade? Like Obviously, there's always usually a winner in a trade, but how do you approach a fair trade when it comes to prospects being involved? Yeah, it's it, there's just so much variance with it. A lot of it, you know, I have over 300 VIP members. They bought all of my preseason content. I emailed it to them on New Year's Day a few months ago. And I also follow them on Twitter, and they can direct message me with their trade offers, uh, prospect questions, anything really that they need to know about redraft leagues, dynasty leagues. They ask me, and I, I'm on Twitter so much that I'm able really to respond to their questions within minutes. So really the main thing that you have to take into consideration is where does your team stand now? And that's a tough question to answer because a lot of us have a tendency of really kind of overvaluing where our team stands. Like a lot of the people who ask me questions, a lot of times I'll ask them, hey, you know, uh, take some screenshots and send me what your roster looks like because they may be under the impression that they're ready to compete right now when really they're kind of middle of a more of a middle of the pack type team. So accurately evaluating where your team stands now might be the most important part. And another important part is to not have, not have emotional attachments to these prospects. <laughs> I was talking to a VIP member a couple of days ago, and I basically had to plead with him. Now, get this. I had to plead with him. He's a win-now team, ready to win this year. I had to plead with him to include Nolan Jones, a third base prospect for the Indians who I ranked, I believe inside my top 40 this preseason for Anthony Rendon. You had to like plead with him for that. Do what now? <laughs> you had to plead with him for that. Yes. He had grown so attached and it is an OBP league and Nolan Jones is going to be a better OBP league player than an average league player. But Rendon is a guy who is going to threaten 300 every year. He's mm -hmm. now batting behind Mike Trout in one of the more, in my opinion, underrated top halves of a lineup in baseball. It's just, you know, it's a no-brainer to include, you know, if if someone won't trade me uh, Anthony Rendon because I won't include Nolan Jones, then I need to evaluate kind of where I'm at as far as being a Dynasty League player goes. So not having these emotional attachments to these prospects who maybe you've had on your roster since the day they were drafted. And I understand you want to kind of be that day one guy. I drafted Andrew Benintendi in my first year, first year, my first ever first year player draft. I grabbed Andrew Benintendi and he's a guy. I'm the only one in my league who's ever rostered him. But that doesn't mean that if the right offer comes alone along that I won't part ways with Andrew Benintendi if it makes my team better. So kind of keeping emotions out of it is such a huge deal. And as far as specific trades go, what I often do is I always have NFBC's redraft ADP pulled up. And I can kind of filter to make sure that I stay current, especially, you know, since baseball has been shut down, guys like a Mike Clevenger, their ADP has improved again. A James Paxton, his, uh, his ADP has skyrocketed since baseball was shut down. But I always think, you know, after we know for sure where your Dynasty League team stands, am I ready to win this year or does my contention window really begin to open in two years? Can I visualize, you know, starting pitchers? Can I predict the future and kind of say, okay, in three years, 
this is where the starting pitcher should be. Can I trade him for a starting pitcher who we may not see until two or three years, like a Shane Baz with a Tampa Bay Rays? So it's a lot about predicting the future, kind of taking into consideration how old these MLB players are, how good they're likely to be in a few years. Do they possess the type of skill set that ages well? Uh, someone who's willing to take a walk, someone who has uh, batting average balls in place who shouldn't regress largely over time? Or is this a player who is kind of built to age poorly? Someone who doesn't walk all that often, they kind of thrive off inflated uh, BABIPs, things like that. Then I'm more willing to kind of include those players in Dynasty League trade talks. You know, once again, there's just so many different avenues and different methods of evaluation that you have to keep in mind as you're trying to make these dynasty league trade. Yeah, no, they're deep. That's why I was, I was going to ask you your opinion on that because a few things you mentioned there that were awesome were uh, don't be too attached to a player. That's so, so true. Cause you, you know, you've dealt with it. I've dealt with it. You try to make a trade on something and like, oh, I just can't get rid of that guy. And it's like, everyone's got a price people. Everyone has a price. Yes. Just remember that. Like, do you want to win or do you not want to win? It's pretty, pretty simple for me. Uh, so that's always a fun one that, that you need to have a price. I think, Sometimes for me, less is more. Like, if you want one of my really good players, don't offer me five guys. Maybe offer me two really good guys. Like, I think that goes a lot farther in the situation because you have to remember if you're giving them five for one, then they got to drop four more guys. So yeah, it excellent, kind of changes the trade. Yep. And that's so, a question that I have to ask yeah. a lot is, you know, yeah, you're going them. to receive these four prospects for your one really good redraft player, but who exactly are you going to be dropping? When you exactly. add these four players, that's a, that's something that a lot of players really don't take into consideration. Yep, that's a major one for me because I've, I've had a, a lot of guys offer me trades. I'm like, yeah, it's nice and all, but really it does not help me the way you think it does. So yeah. that, that, but that's like, always, like you said, the yeah. words uh, not available for trade have never come out of my mouth. If you want to yep. tr- trade me for Ronald Acuna Jr., okay, show me the money. You know, yep. make an offer that I'm at, at least willing to contemplate. I'm never going to say, you know, I this guy is unavailable to trade just because you do have those people every once in a while who oh, yeah. are willing to overpay majorly for a top-end asset. And that's the thing is if they want to give me the right price, like, I might like a player a lot, so it might cost a little more, but I'm not saying it's off the table. So yeah, ab- it, it, Absolutely, it's, never. It's never off simple. the table. And, and I, it was evidence in a league I was in last year is I'm a diehard Giants fan. I have Marco Luciano, and I loved him more than anything. But I'm really close to win now, and I got three guys that can help me win now. And I just I pulled the pen. Like it sucked, but uh, I pulled the pen. So it, 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 that's the way it has to go. Uh, when you're making dynasty trades, uh, this is always a fun one for me. Are you? Is it easier for you? Again, everyone has a price. You could trade anyone, but is it easier for you to get rid of a pitcher, a dynasty like a prospect pitcher over a hitter? Yes. Yeah. Just because I think there is so much variance, and you know, unfortunately, it's like we talked about a little while ago. In any given second, as horrendous as this is to say, a pitcher could tear their UCL, and as soon as that happens, they're going to miss anywhere from 12 to 18 months of competition. And if you think it, it was hard to trade a pitching prospect before, wait until the your league mate who is trading for this pitching prospect now kind of has to sit on him for more than a year before they see any type of output. So, yes, I'm always willing to trade a pitching prospect before a position playing prospect, as long as they're ranked fairly similarly. All right, let's give um, some of the listeners some redraft stuff for this season. Hoping we have a season still, maybe sh- 
you know, obviously shortened season, but you know, Lewis, uh, Luis Robert, he he's, he's a popular name. Um, there, there's other ones that, that have been mentioned, you know, Joe Adele, people are starting to speculate. They'll actually start down, but with a shortened season, do you see these prospects maybe having a more immediate impact like Nick Madrigal and others, or do you think maybe this keeps them down more? It's a question that I've been asked so much in the past <laughs> few weeks. It's very, in my opinion, it's very team specific. True. Very so true. first of all, we don't really know how service time is going to be altered this season. We don't know. Uh, I've heard a couple of theories. My favorite one and the one I think makes the most sense is prorating service time. So if they prorate service time, then it's not really going to be that unusual or unique compared to uh, a normal 162 game regular season. What is going to be unique is, uh, you know, regardless of how many games you think we're going to play, where I always land is anywhere probably from 80 to 100, hopefully in a perfect world. I don't think we're, I don't see us playing more than that many games. And I hope that we don't play fewer than that many games. So if you cut the regular season in half, the importance of each individual game is greatly increased. So if you are a team who is kind of on the bubble as far as contending this season, and my mind immediately goes to a San Diego Padres who could be in contention for a wild card slot. My mind immediately goes to a Cardinals who should uh, look to win the NL Central again. My mind goes to the White Sox who could compete in the AL Central. I look at a guy like a McKenzie Gore. If he can put me over the top as far as clinching a playoff spot goes, when I am paying Eric Hosmer way too much money, when I'm paying Manny Machado a lot, when I went out and signed a Drew Pomeranz to kind of be the anchor in the back end of my bullpen, it to me personally, it doesn't make much sense for the Padres to not take advantage of a shortened season and say, okay, we need to be optimized from day one. We're going to run out our best pitchers as often as we can. We're going to run out our best lineup as often as we can. And to me, that means that McKenzie Gore should play a huge role in their rotation this year. Same goes for the White Sox and Nick Madrigal. I think that he was already MLB ready. I think the White Sox could have perhaps uh, tried to get an extra year of service time out of him before promoting him in a normal season. Now, if the season's cut in half, there's really, in my opinion, no excuse for him to not be their everyday second baseman from the get-go, especially with his skill set of really being high contact. He's not going to swing and miss too much. That, to me, it strikes me as a profile that is not going to take too long to have an impact at the big league level. Now, on the reverse side of that coin, a team like the Detroit Tigers. They're not going to compete. I don't care how many games are in the season. They're not going to win the AL Central. They're not going to make the playoffs this season. I could see that leaving them or leading them to be more conservative with their pitching prospects, a Casey Mize, a Matt Manning. You know, they could be more conservative with them. Just, you know, it doesn't matter when they get called up. They're not going to have a big enough impact to give the Tigers a chance at competing. So maybe the Tigers do play that more conservatively. They stick them in AAA. They allow them to continue to get used to the big league ball in the AAA rotation and then perhaps give them the opportunity to break camp uh, at the start of next season or call them up, you know, perhaps for the last month of this regular season, allow them to accrue maybe 20 innings pitch at the big league level. They maintain prospect eligibility 
and then you go into next season hoping that they play a huge role on your team. No, that's very interesting stuff there because, you know, back in, say, February, there were people getting the idea that, you know, Mize or Manning or one of them might have a role in the second half of the season, and that's obviously a little bit different now. Uh, Nick Madrigal was a name that was kind of dependent on who was talking. I love the McGinsey Gore call. I've been telling, I was telling people that he, he could be this year's Chris Paddock for them, maybe not to the same level, but maybe the way the Dodgers used Walker Bueller his first year in the second half of the season, kind of getting some love for him. Now it might be even easier to throw him out there. So that's interesting. Yeah, Are there any don't, other? Don't sleep. Yeah. I think you were about to ask it. Don't sleep on a Spencer Howard either. There you go. I love Spencer Howard. Yes, I think that's like, a He's a guy one. who. I, They've already I, said he's going to be like their fifth starter. Yes. Like I, I play in a lot of NFBC leagues and I am in more draft championships than any other format on that site. Spencer Howard is a guy who I was stashing even before there was any clue that the season was going to be delayed. You could get him super late in a 50 round draft. Of course, in draft championship leagues, there are no waiver wire moves, no trades, stuff like that. I was just going to stash him and hope that maybe by the middle of the summer, he becomes a guy I can stick in the back end of my rotation if I have injuries or ineffectiveness. Now, if you know if the season is cut to 81 or 100 games, the Phillies were going to kind of limit his workload anyways, but they should also hope to either compete in the NL East or for a wild card slot. He is one of their five best starting pitchers within their organization. A shortened season allows his workload to kind of be naturally monitored, even at the big league level. So it doesn't really make sense to me for the Phillies to say, ah, oh, you know what, we're going to kind of throw off for the first couple of weeks of the season. That way we make sure that we uh, gain a year of service time from Spencer Howard instead of, you know, him breaking camp whenever that is in their rotation and having an impact for the duration of a shortened season. Okay, when you're talking the draft champions, that's kind of where I wanted to go with this next question. I love the Spencer Howard play. That's a guy that I was kind of looking at there. With this potential shortened season, you know, best balls, same thing. Are there any other guys you might be willing to take a chance on that uh, even if they only play half of the shortened season, they could have an impact for uh, listeners out there? You know, Kyle Wright is really kind of the first one who comes to mind with the Braves. I just think – based on every kind of leak that we've received on how a shortened 2020 season would kind of work as far as the schedule goes, it seems that there are going to be a lot of double headers. There are not going to be a lot of off days. And if that's the case, then organizations who are deep at starter at deep in their rotation are going to kind of have an unspoken advantage. And the Braves are certainly that team. In my estimation, you you know, if there is at least one doubleheader a week and there is one off day maybe every three weeks, then teams are going to need six or seven starting pitchers over the course of a 100-game season. So someone like a Kyle Wright, he probably wasn't going to beat out Felix Hernandez just because Felix had looked really good uh, during spring training. The Braves were probably going to hope to get as much out of him as they could before Cole Hamels came back from injury because he hurt his shoulder during spring training. Now that the Braves might need six or seven starting pitchers, a guy like Kyle Wright, who has already debuted at the big league level, uh, his stuff has progressed. He had an issue with spin efficiency last year. That looks like it might have improved. He's a guy that I can take at the very end of a deep, like a best ball or a D.C., 
who I probably won't get an impact out of when the season starts, but he is going to log big league innings this summer as long as we have a season. And he is a guy that could help me uh, win a league when, you know, in this format that we don't get the waiver wire moves, we don't get to make trades. He's going to have an impact with the Braves at some point this summer. Uh, Just a couple more questions for you that uh, Wander Franco, who is your number one now, number one in 2021, and rightfully so. Um, The Rays said that he should get some time this season, obviously before all this took place. Is he worth taking a stab on in a best ball? Because we really don't know what to what aspect the Rays are talking about because the Rays do all kinds of goofy things. So it would be hypocritical of me if I said yes, just because <laughs> I think I think I'm in like 14 redraft leagues this year and I don't have him anywhere. So the Ray, I think the Rays' plan were, I think Kevin Cash had gone on record saying that they were going to move him around uh, defensively in the minor leagues. And it's something I've had to say multiple times the past couple months. Willie Adamas does not suck. Like he's a really good defensive shortstop, and that's super valuable in real life baseball. So it wasn't inevitable that Wander Franco was just going to kind of overtake Adamas this season, eventually, probably, but probably not this year. So I think the Rays' goal was to move Franco to third base, move him around in the outfield, just to where if they need him at the big league level, that he doesn't just have to play shortstop. But He's a guy that I haven't drafted anywhere regardless of the depth of a draft. So, like I said, it'd be hypocritical for me to say I think he's going to have a huge impact at the big league level this season. All right, let's get to the listener question we got here. I apologize. I forgot to tweet it out earlier today. and I got busy, but we got one in the time frame. We got it at Telly45. He says with, with, with lives at risk and uh, the way people smoke, drink, drive, whatever, CV, uh, with COVID-19's risk, um, when we get there and open up baseball again, will projections be worthless if all games are played in Arizona? Because, you know, the weather, the stadiums, the climate, the altitude, all those things, it's going to be a band box. Like, what are you going to do with projections? How do you evaluate these players going into maybe a full season in Arizona? It, that's a really interesting question. I'm not sure that team projections change that much just because I'm under the – mindset that really the cream is going to rise to the top no matter what as far as the team goes uh individual players you know it is true that Arizona is a total bandbox there would be a huge increase to offensive output I would think being in that offensive atmosphere with the warm weather also very little humidity which would allow the ball to travel further but every prospect would receive that benefit or not every prospect every player would receive that benefit so Perhaps kind of your power hitters who hit the ball in the air with frequency, I would say that maybe they get a slight bump as far as your projections go. The flip side of that coin, I think of someone like a Vladimir Guerrero Jr. who, you know, he hasn't optimized his launch angle yet. He hits the ball hard frequently, but a lot of that contact is ground balls. He was working on that this offseason and preseason. I don't know where it's going to stand this season, but I would think that kind of your power hitters who have the high fly ball rates, I think they might receive a little bit more of a bump. But in the end, it's going to be a friendly offensive environment for everybody. So I think we're going to see kind of across the board increases instead of really just kind of narrowing the scope to a few. I think it's going to be kind of a wide effect. What do you think? I'm interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I'm with I'm with you pretty much. So one thing I will tell people is the, the ball is going to fly a lot, like you said. So the Rockies 
advantage they had is pretty much gone. People drafting Rockies players for their advantage, that that just evened out quite a bit. I would want to see the schedule because now the Diamondbacks, if they play at Chase Field, it would be a, the biggest pitcher advantage in all of the league because the other games would be outdoors. So Absolutely. that's an interest, interesting way to play it. And you'd imagine it's going to be so hot in Arizona, they'll play some games in the morning, some games in the evening. But we'll, we'll have to see how they play that out where at Chase Field, if they really want to, if you schedule it properly, you can play like three games a day there. So yeah. who gets stuck there? <laughs> that's another way to look at it. Um, the potential doubleheaders with seven inning games, does that increase, you know, uh, complete games? Or do we see, a, like you said, six-man rotations? Do we get more relievers getting save situations because players are getting taxed more? That's another aspect that that really has to be delved into more. I think there's going to be a lot more. I think the pitchers, there's going to be more pitching depth in fantasy this year if that takes place. Because the hitters, yeah, you can rotate around there. There's expanded rosters. But I think you're going to have to carry more relievers, uh, a guy that can go maybe four to five innings just to help out in uh, double-header type situations. And just the heat, the toll the heat will take on the human body where they might have gone eight or nine innings. They might only get six or seven innings out of them now because they're just drained. Right. So, two two things really come to my mind. Of course, I mentioned the, the sluggers, I guess you could say, who hit the ball in the air frequently. It should be assumed from our listeners, but I'm going to just say it anyways. That also means that pitchers who keep the ball on the ground and have high ground ball rates, I would think that they would receive a little bit of a benefit just because a hitter can't hit the ball over the fence if he hits it on the ground. So a pitcher that um, is kind of has that track record of inducing that ground ball contact. Uh, And yes, I completely agree. No matter when baseball returns, no matter what setting it returns in, I would assume that we're going to have as short of a rev up period and kind of a abbreviated spring training as possible, just so we can get to the regular season. That means that your starting pitchers are not going to be fully stretched out. You're going Mm -hmm. to see even your Max Scherzer's and your uh, Garrett Coles and Jacob DeGrom's. I would assume that their early season outings are only going to be four or five innings, probably at the max as they continue to stretch their arms out. So uh, bullpens become a bigger impact, like you said, and starting pitcher depth. That's why I think a guy like a Spencer Howard or a Kyle Wright mm-hmm. are going to have a fairly notable impact this season. Yeah, that's a great call with those guys. And, you know, there's maybe even more injury risk with the shorter ramp-up time, which could lead to all kinds of other players getting chances to play. Um, and I agree. I think the ramp-up time is going to be shorter. I, I understand that they're not, like, in full mode right now, but you see it on Twitter. These guys are working out. They all have pretty nice setups if they want to. Um, facilities are open for them if they actually want to go, but I understand that a lot of them don't, but they're going to be ready to go. You've listened to a lot of the players that said, you know, you give me seven days or whatever, I'll be, I'll be good. Most of those are hitters. So it's different than pitching, but a lot of these guys are ready. They're rehabbing. They, they, they can find mounds to throw off of. They're staying loose. It's just a matter of when to ramp it up. So it'll be real interesting to see when that all takes place. But, Ray, I think we'll wrap it up there. This has been an absolute joy talking to you, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing it again sometime because I could pick your brain for quite some time and talk maybe more just seasonal stuff. But the Dynasty stuff always intrigues me. Before we sign off again, plug everything you got going on where they can find you. Sure. So you can find us on Twitter at Prospects365. Of course, the website is Prospects365.com. Make sure you follow all of our staff writers. They are more – uh, they are more than uh, passable as far as who you should be following on Twitter. They are definitely people you should be following. You will become a better baseball fan and a better uh, fantasy player by following those people. 
Lastly, I voted for the Bench with Bubba podcast today in the baseball pods bracketology. Uh, you look like you need a little bit of kind yeah. of a rally to beat the in this league pod. It's that's not going to happen. That's a heavyweight contest. <laughs> yep. That is a heavyweight contest. But if you do listen to the Prospects 365 Fantasy Baseball podcast uh, and you like what you hear, support us. We are up in the second round on Thursday. We are playing the almighty uh, Athletic Fantasy Baseball podcast. They are a two seed. We are a 10 seed. We are going to need all the help that we can get. So if you support us, you like the content that we pump out and our podcast, give us a vote. We would definitely appreciate it. Yeah, go give them some love, everybody. Great work, as you can tell us in a little bit. We got the chat here and what he's already done in uh, his early episodes and his writing. Uh, go check them out. And thanks for the vote, as I knew it was going to be very difficult. I, I do work with the, the ITL guys, and I know how, how much of an army they have. So I was not planning on winning today. So uh, I, w- I was expecting that. But uh, thanks for all that. And, Ray, thanks for joining me, man. Really good Absolutely. time. Like, like I said, we will do this again sometime. Yeah, enjoy it. We need to have you on the Prospects 365 podcast here soon. You just let me know. We'll make it work. Absolutely. But, uh, Everybody, this is Bench with Bubba, episode 72, or 272 with Ray Butler of Prospects 365. Catch you guys later.